Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, we'll read verses 11 to 24. That can be found on page 1,303 of your pew Bibles. We will also be reading from the Belgic Article 29 as we continue in the marks of the church. Tonight, looking at the marks of believers and the marks of the false church. Before reading from 1 John 3, let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we pray that as we open your word, you would speak to us through it, that you would open our hearts to receive all that you have to say here, to convict, to give to us that exhortation we need to pursue your will, to pursue your word and your law, but as well give to us a healing balm. May you give to us and may we understand aright the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that we see the beauty of grace. Thus let us understand first of all grace. And then may we respond in gratitude with obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 3, beginning verse 11, we'll see here a lot of what the Belgic will talk about as marks of believers, particularly in obedience to the law, into love, and faith. Getting in verse 11, it says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. It's as far as we'll read in First John. But again, pay attention there to the call to love, to the call to believe, to obey the commandments, as well as we see there in verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And we'll see that in this article of the Belgic. So would you turn to Belgic Article 29, beginning on page 185 in your Forms and Prayers book. We'll be looking at the second half of it, but we'll read it in its entirety the marks of the true church. It says, We believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully by the word of God what is the true church. For all sects in the world today claim for themselves the name of the church. 
We are not speaking here of the company of hypocrites who are mixed among the good in the church and who nonetheless are not part of it, even though they are physically there. But we are speaking of distinguishing the body and fellowship of the true church from all sects that call themselves the church. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. As for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or left, and they crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in him. As for the false church, it assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the word of God. It does not want to be subject, it does not want to subject itself to the yoke of Christ. It does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in his word. It rather adds to them or subtracts from them as it pleases. It bases itself on men more than on Jesus Christ. It persecutes those who live holy lives according to the word of God and who rebuke it for its faults, greed, and idolatry. These two churches are easy to recognize and thus to distinguish from each other. People of God, as we have gone through the Belgic, we've seen these marks of the church. We've seen the obligations of church membership, all these things that are very important. We've taken our time here. We've gone through the Belgic at a relatively quick pace, meaning we've mostly taken an article at a time, but we've slowed down here because of the relevance in our culture and our context for the church, for its membership, as well as to recognize what is the true church. Without being able to discern this, we would place ourselves in great danger. Last time, just as way of review, we looked at those three official marks of the church, the pure preaching of God's word, the pure administration of the sacrament and church discipline, and we ended as well with a little bit of an explanation, a little bit of a nuance and a fine point that not all churches just function according then to a, oh, this is easily a true church, this is easily a false church. But the understanding there are churches that are true churches and yet more or less pure. And we looked at the Westminster Confession of Faith, saw that distinguishing mark of a more or less pure church. I want to say a couple more things about that before we get into the marks of believers. I think this is important. The reason I think this is important is it does have an application for our own membership. It has an application for how we conduct ourselves as members in a church, how we value our membership, and how we value others. How do we, how do we interact? What do we do? I would like to provide some words of caution, and that is that we ought not treat the marks of the church as if they're an exit card or a battering ram that then gets us out of something. 
that we, did not, that we would not use that unduly. And what I mean here is, is let's say there was a, a disciplinary case or something in the church, and as a congregant, you thought it was handled poorly, and maybe it was. Let's say for just this illustration that the, the elders didn't handle a disciplinary case well. Does that then give us as congregants a right to then, then say, oh, we can leave it? This is no longer a true church. They, they failed in this case. Well, we would say no, and that's not to to say that a church shouldn't obviously conduct itself well. But just because a church might make a mistake, just because there might be even some impurity within a church, that doesn't mean we can then come in with the marks of the church and say, you failed, the marks of the church is discipline, you didn't carry it out well, you're no longer a true church. It's not that simple, and we have to understand that. Proper response in those type of cases would be to appeal to the church, to appeal to the elders, to go about that in an honorable but recognizing authority, going through it in that way. But that just doesn't give us a way out. And sometimes the danger can be to use these marks too strong. As if, okay, immediately we, we would leave. And where I'm getting at with this is an example of the reformers themselves. Ultimately, we are those in the tradition of reformers, those who did separate themselves from a false church, those who left the Catholic Church, but they did so often when it was the last resort. Often the reformers stayed in a church that they knew had significant problems, but sought to reform it until the church had kicked them out, until the church had excommunicated them and the church had forced them out. And I bring that up not to say that's when and only when you can leave what is a false church, when it kicks you out. No, there are times when we would weigh, no, this church isn't a good church. This church is not good for our family, and we must separate ourselves from it. That's legitimate. But I use that as an example to show the caution with which we are to use that. The caution that we are to, in many ways, seek to stay long in our church where we are a member seeking its betterment, not just to separate ourselves from it. And I think that's very important for us to know. Too quickly do we see those who just leave, who are their, their family, who would leave and not, not battle it out, not seek the betterment of the church and its purity. That gives us then an understanding, no, we love the church, we love where we are members, and even when there is a problem there, we don't just separate ourselves from it, we seek its betterment. Now, that all takes wisdom. Obviously, each case has to be weighed according to its own unique situation. But that guides us in it, that we aren't to use these marks just as an exit card. And we are to use them in wisdom. All that is to say that displaying love for God and for Christ's church should be a wise and patient and careful, a discerning love of God and his church. That's how we are to conduct ourselves. The marks of the church are not the only things to look at in a church either. The Belgic boils it down to those points because at, at the very least, that's what the church must do. That's what it's called to do. But the health of a church is more than that. The health of a church is the love of its, its members towards each other. The health of a church is its hospitality. And that gets at what we're looking at here in the marks of believers. That's where the Belgic turns. That's our first point this evening, just having covered that by way of review and by way of caution. Now we look at the second half of the Belgic and first marks of believers. This is what the Belgic says. It says, As for those who are of the church... 
we can recognize them by the, by the distinguishing marks of Christians. Well, what are those marks? And it says, namely by faith, by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or left, and they crucify the flesh and its works. So what are the marks of believers? Faith, conversion, heartfelt law-keeping, single-minded devotion to Christ, mortification of the flesh, and one appeal. I'll go through those again. The marks of the Christians are faith, conversion, heartfelt law-keeping, single-minded devotion to Christ, mortification of the flesh, and one appeal. The church's ministry does not mean much if all we can cling to are empty official marks. The church does not mean much if all we can cling to are empty marks. And what do I mean by that? Well, if, if technically the true gospel is preached, if technically the sacraments are administered correctly, and if technically discipline is done, but if it does not bring a change in the people, then what good was that true preaching? And what good were those true sacraments? And what did the discipline do? You see, it doesn't bring about the desired response of the people. It's, it's sort of common for us to weight the importance of this article more towards the front half and say those three official marks, that's the important part, and then to kind of pass over this. I didn't want us to do that. Because in reality, those marks of the church are serving a purpose. And what they're serving is to make believers like this. To make believers who manifest the marks of Christians. And you can't and shouldn't have one without the other. And so we have to examine our own lives. Are these the characteristics of our own church? Are these the characteristics of our lives? These characteristics of Christians. There is a danger against which we need to be aware, and that is that we only really look at the marks of the church in those three steps and forget the rest. Forget what's truly important, and that's not to say those aren't important. It's to get our priorities straight. Those marks are not an end in themselves, as we saw last time. Those marks are done in service to Christ, and that's what the marks of a believer are. And so we're going to go through them. First, faith. That's the first mark, and that's quite obvious. The first mark of a believer is belief. Can't be a believer without believing, without trusting. That's why full participation in the church is that you need to make a profession of faith before you can come to the Lord's table. It's required. Faith is, where does salvation come? Well, it's grace alone through faith alone. So you need faith. Faith is the instrument by which we grasp Christ and thus receive all his benefits. And you see that in our text from 1 John. 1 John says in the latter half of that reading, beginning in verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So it's setting that forth. Well, how do we know this? And it says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. And so you see that belief is first and foremost what we are. We're those who believe. And so, people of God, 
Do not neglect what you believe. It's kind of interesting language that Scripture will use at times to, to not neglect the teaching, to not neglect the faith, to not neglect who you are and what you profess. That's why weekly we profess our faith. We profess what we believe. That's why we'll say at times these words are the most powerful words that can be spoken, the words of faith. They are, through grace in Christ, literally what shield us from damnation itself. They are what protect us from hell and the devil and the wrath of God, a profession of faith in him. We are the people of faith. That's the first mark of a Christian. The second is what we call conversion. This is where the Belgic says that true Christians flee from sin and pursue righteousness. True conversion is the putting to death of the old sinful nature and the coming to life of the new nature. That's what the Belgic is describing here, a flight from sin and a pursuit of righteousness. And again, we have to ask, do we see that in our own lives? Are we daily and constantly fleeing from the sin that we face? And then are we pursuing righteousness in its stead? Is that what saves us? No, that's the mark of a true faith, that one is truly converted, that one would turn from these things, that one would pursue righteousness, that one would flee from sin. And so daily we pray that we would hate sin. Daily we pray that we would turn from it. And this morning we read from Matthew 5, for the reading of the law, we read the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus says, if you have sinned in this way or if you struggle in this way, it's better to pluck out your eye than to lust. It's better to cut off your hand than to sin, meaning that that sin needs to be dealt with. It's better to put in place protection and accountability. It's better to go to others and seek help as we flee from sin. And that's a powerful term, flight. Fleeing from sin. You don't court it. It's also what Psalm 1 said. You don't stand in its presence. You don't sit in its presence. You flee. And so we could say, I say this a bit tongue-in-cheek, we are the people of flight. Christians are the people of flight, fleeing from sin in that regard, but to a pursuit of righteousness. So first mark of a believer is faith. Second mark is conversion. The third mark, heartfelt keeping of the law. This is where the Belgic says that they love the true God and their neighbors. We saw that as well from our reading in 1 John, that we are called to love this is the summary of the whole law of God, to love God and neighbor. Christians will be known by their heartfelt keeping of the law expressed in that love. Are you known as a loving person? There are sometimes uh, practices that uh, you'll say, can you describe this person with one word? That's usually not that beneficial, because how can you? How can you encompass a person with with one word, but if you were to ask someone, how would you describe who I am? How would you describe me? Would, would a description contain the idea of a loving character? One who shows love and concern for others. And if that's lacking, then that's, that's a problem. If those in our lives who know us best wouldn't really characterize us as those who love, well, then, as First John would say, well, that's not manifesting the, the, the truth of Christ. So a mark of a believer is a heartfelt keeping of the law to love, to love God, to love neighbor. And as our reading from 
1 John 3 says you can't claim to love God and not love your neighbor. You can't claim to love God and not show that love to each other. We love God by loving each other. That's how we obey it. That's how we keep it. And that's how we're marked. And that's why for each of these, we're asking ourselves, do we do this? Is this true of us? Does this mark us? First, faith. Second, conversion. Third, heartfelt keeping of the law. Fourth, single-minded devotion to Christ. The Belgic says that Christians believe in Christ, they love, and then it says without turning to the right or to the left. This is not meaning that we still don't sin. Clearly, the Belgic will go on to say that we do. What it's meaning here is that Christians will not depart from the faith. They will not turn away. They will not be swayed away. Very similar to what we talked about this morning of the double-minded man. They won't fall that way. They will remain true, single-minded devotion to Christ. That's who they serve. That's who we are. We are those who place Christ front and center. We are devoted to him with that single-mindedness. And so again, we evaluate ourselves as that what we do is Christ at the center. Is he governing our life? Is there an area of your life that isn't under the rule of Christ, that you have allowed to, to stay and to nurture, that you've allowed to remain there and haven't cut off? A believer is one who cuts that off, single-minded devotion to Christ. And fifth, this is exactly what we just said, the mortification of the flesh. The Belgic says, crucifying the flesh and its works. Christians are those who put their flesh to death. They crucify it. Interesting language there, right? Not just putting to death. Death by crucifixion. The very way that Christ was punished for our sins, crucifixion on a cross, we crucify the sin that cursed death that Christ suffered, we do that to our sinful natures. It's not just a putting to death, it's putting it to death fully, it's crucifying it. And that language also reminds us of Christ again. That is only in his strength we crucify it, we put it away. If you want to know what a true Christian is, they are those who turn from sin. They are those who live a godly life. They are those, as we read in Psalm 1, who depart from the way of wickedness and don't stand in their way. Too often what that means is in our lives, we look down on those people. Those who are very skilled, those who are far along the path of putting sin to death, of not standing in wickedness, often receive scorn and often receive it from Christians themselves who mock them, who call them goody-two-shoes, who say, oh, come on, live a little. Is living a little the mark of a believer, or is it crucifying sin, putting sin to death? That's what marks a believer. And then sixth, and finally, the mark of a believer is an, a, a belief of one appeal. One appeal. This is beautiful, beautiful language. The Belgic says, though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in him. We have one appeal. Christians are those who make one appeal, and the appeal is to Christ and only to him. 
That is what they do. It's beautiful. Though great weakness remains, and we wouldn't say it doesn't. We know we're weak. We know that that weakness remains, but it doesn't stay there in the sense that we're content with it. We appeal to one, and we make that appeal to Christ himself. True believers are not marked by their own perfection. And isn't that so comforting to know that what the Belgic didn't say here as a mark of true Christians is that they keep the law perfectly. We can't. And that's not what it says. And that's a tremendous comfort that we're, quite frankly, just too familiar with. We hear it and it just rushes into our minds. Yes, we, we're, we're sinners, and we don't keep the law perfectly, and we're forgiven, but that's the whole gospel. To have that weight removed, that what's not a mark of a Christian is perfection. It's an appeal. One appeal to Christ. And even as the way the Belgic says it, it's almost like we as Christians would be would be confused with a broken record, that we're constantly appealing to the same thing. It's Christ and his blood, and it's Christ and his blood, and that's who we look to, and it's him and his suffering, it's him and his obedience, and we're constantly saying that on repetition. That is the appeal of a Christian. Remember, it was not the Pharisee who prayed his proud prayer in the temple, Lord, thank you that I am not like this one who's worse than me who was accepted, it was the one who appealed to the mercy of God, the tax collector, and who went home justified? The sinner, the tax collector, the one who that day and age wouldn't have appeared to contain the marks of a believer. And yet it was his faith and his appeal in the mercy of God that made him justified rather than the other. So these are the marks of a believer True believers are those who take refuge in Christ and appeal constantly to his blood, his suffering, and his death. And then the Belgic moves to marks of the false church. It's well-rounded. It begins with the marks of the true church. The middle is marks of believers, and then the marks of the false church. What's the marks of the false church? First, it's usurpation of God's word, to usurp God's word. Second, it's resistance to Christ's rule. Third, it's misuse of the sacraments. Fourth, it's man-centered instead of Christ-centered. And fifth, it's an agent of persecution. That's what the false church is. First, they usurp God's word. To usurp is to violate, to take authority over it in yourself, to not submit to, to stand over it. The Belgic is saying this is first and primarily characteristic of what is a false church. They don't follow the word of God. They usurp it. Clearly, this had a, an appeal at that time to the Roman Catholic Church who placed themselves above the teaching of Scripture. But we can see it so clearly today when the inspiration of God's Word is questioned and not followed. It's usurped. God's Word has lost its authority. It isn't followed. This manifests itself when churches reject that inspiration, when churches will say, and follow the will of man more than the will of God and more than what the Word of God says. And we need to be careful that we don't just so quickly think past this. No true church has ever fallen and become a false church without this pillar falling first, without God's Word being usurped, without not following Christ and His rule. We need to be sure that we are those who prioritize God's Word and see that the false church 
can be known by not following it, by not listening to it. Second, the false church is known by being resistant to, the, to Christ's rule. This is very similar to usurping God's word, but it's a different emphasis. So the first one is they usurp God's word. They don't listen to it. They take that own authority. This is where they will resist the rule of Christ himself. They won't follow it. Christ isn't truly the head of the church. That is a false church. Christ is not the head. He's not recognized to be the head. Even if he's given a ceremonial position and placed there, no, they claim it. They claim that he's the head. They don't follow his word, and so they reject his rule. That's what the false church does. It doesn't see the rule of Christ. There are many teachers on TV. There are many writers of books who claim to follow God's word, who claim to follow Christ, but the messages don't match. They don't contain the gospel of Christ and the accompanying rule of his lordship. They want to take Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. The true church takes him as both. Third, a false church is known by the misuse of sacraments. The Belgic says it does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in his word. We spoke about this last time on sacraments are actually quite dangerous, and I could say it this way on Judgment Day, and this is sad. This is a sad reality, but on Judgment Day, how many will be told to depart from the Lord, and they will say, Lord, Lord, he's going to say, I de depart from me, I never knew you, and they will think they knew him because they had water placed on their head and because they came to communion. That's how dangerous a misuse of sacraments are taking the gospel message, diverting it away from the truth in Christ, putting it to a physical sign, misunderstanding it, and then people think they're saved there. They think they're set. They don't have the words of faith. Like we said, those words of faith are the strong words that keep us from hell itself. It isn't a physical sign performed. How sad that that's what has often happened through churches misguiding and misleading people into what is a false gospel through the very signs that should represent the gospel itself. That's why a false church is so dangerous. That's why you would know a false church when they misuse these sacraments. It's dangerous to seek grace in, in a means of grace that God has not prescribed. He has not prescribed these things to convey that just by receiving them. It's also dangerous in devaluing the sacraments since the sacraments are what nourish the faith and the false church misuses these things. They don't understand them. Fourth, a false church is man-centered instead of Christ-centered. And as the Belgic says, the false church bases itself on men more than on Jesus Christ. And this is, again, one we can easily apply today. What the church of today largely follows is what man wants and the gospel is changed and forced into what the culture deems appropriate. Thus we have the battles of marriages. Thus we have the battle of homosexuality. Thus there's the battle of transgenderism and everything else. And what it is, is it's not appeals to God's word. They're not sound appeals to God's word that these false churches use. It's just that it must be right. Because that must be the loving way. Appealing to the will of man more than the will of God. That's what a false church does. A false church are those who conduct themselves according to their own preferences. 
The will of man, what does he want? What worship, what way to worship does he want? And that's what they'll follow without looking into God's word and seeing what true worship of God is. It's all to fulfill the desires of man. That's a false church. And then last, agents of persecution. The Belgic says that a false church persecutes those who live holy lives according to the word of God and who rebuke it for its faults greed, and idolatry. Those who rebuke that church find themselves persecuted by it. Those who are members of the seed of the woman find themselves persecuted by the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent that's claiming to be a true church is actually the one persecuting Christ. Because to persecute the true church is to persecute Christ himself. God's word says it. Often the true church would be a remnant Persecuted by those who have more worldly power and worldly influence and worldly size. And yet that does not make them the true Catholic Church. The true universal Church of God is often the very Church that finds itself persecuted by the Church claiming to know Christ. And thus we are as well to be a church that would never persecute anyone, that would never take up those reins and weapons and take upon ourselves that right to persecute others. The true church does not persecute. The true true church makes disciples. It preaches. It brings the gospel. And the true church in that pursuit will find themselves under the persecution of the false church. This is what the Bible explains, and this is what the devil uses. So how do we respond to all this? How do we respond to all that said? Well, first, yes, our church must pursue the marks of the church, preaching, sacraments, discipline. But as we said, we have a job to do, and that is to use those marks of the church ourselves and have it produce loving, obedience, a strong profession of faith, a trust in Christ, producing one appeal We are those that look to bear the characteristic marks of Christians. That's who we are. We strive to manifest these because we are Christians and we bear his name. I want to leave with this thought. I want to close with this thought. Recognizing the marks of true believers and the false church clarifies our pursuit of Christ, our assurance in Christ, and the enemies of Christ. Here's what I mean by that. To recognize these marks, not only the three in the beginning, but all the marks of a believer and the marks of a false church, recognizing all of these marks helps clarify our pursuit of Christ. Because we see that in it, what always is the mark of a true church, it's pursuing him. How do you find a true church? You can boil it all down to, is Christ front and center in every way? Then that's a true believer, then that's a true church. It clarifies it. All these marks show it. But it also gives us our assurance in Christ, and that's that appeal that we make to him, that we are not marked again by our law-keeping in its perfection. We are not saved by that. We're saved through faith, through an appeal to him. It also shows and clarifies who the enemies of Christ are. That's why we look at these marks, because recognizing the marks of true believers And the false church clarifies our own pursuit of Christ, our own assurance, and the enemies that we face. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we turn to you having seen these marks, having seen what characterizes a true church 
and tonight seeing what characterizes true believers. In many respects, these are all things we've known and do know. We know that we are those of the faith. We know that we are to love. We know that we are those who make one appeal. And yet, if we know it so well, why do we so poorly present ourselves as Christians at times? For this, we repent. And we say and pray that you would give to us the desire and the strength to perform all of these things, to show forth love to all, to make the correct profession of faith, to strengthen our faith and appeal to you. We, own, we need your strength to do this. We also pray, Lord, that you would, as you are the king on your throne in sovereign power, that you would fight against the church that is false, that has taken up your name wrongly, that besmirches your name and brings dishonor to it, and brings persecution against us, your people, and we pray that you would fight against that, and we know that you will thwart it in every way and that it will fail. And that we pray we would take assurance. We pray, Lord, that in all things we would be encouraged, encouraged that that appeal to you is what saves, that though great weakness, that though great sin remains within us, we are safe and even part of your true church, which is a tremendous blessing. We give thanks to you. In Jesus' name.